When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, your house smells. Don't get mad. Don't get mad. My house smells too. I'm not, I'm not indicting you. I'm sure you keep a clean home, but just time means you're going to acquire smells, whether those are cooking smells that get in your paint, your carpet, maybe they're animal smells. Maybe you're a smoker or someone else was. Just living creates smells. I didn't realize that my home had a smell to it until I got my first Eden Pure Thunderstorm, the greatest air purifier I've ever ever owned in my life. This thing, I had it plugged in for two hours. I came back in the room and my air smelled so clean. I now own three of them. I'm not making that up. This thing has absolutely changed me on top of what it's done for my allergies. Go get one. Get two. Be like me and get three. Go to EdenPureDeals.com. Make sure you use the promo code JESSE. That gets you 10 bucks off and free shipping. EdenPureDeals.com. Promo code JESSE. This is The Jesse Kelly Show. I want you to imagine being tied to a post in an Indian village. Your friend is tied to a post beside you. Now, your friend 
is not in a good spot. You see, you've been left alone up to this point. Your turn is coming. Your friend, however, well, he doesn't look very good. And he doesn't look very good because the Indians in this village have taken sharp slivers of a pine tree, and I don't mean one or two, I mean a hundred of them, and they've shot them into his body. So he's full of, he looks like a pincushion, right? And you're next. And you watch as they approach the, the friend of yours, who looks like a pincushion, obviously in a great deal of pain. And they light all those pine slivers on fire and burn him like a torch. And you watch this. You hear this. You smell it. And you're next. Now I want you to imagine that this isn't even number one, maybe not even number two on the most terrifying things that have ever happened to you in your life. 1783 in Scranton, Pennsylvania, a young man was born. His name was Hugh. He was, by all accounts, a very big, well-mannered, if not a little wild, young man. And he needed to branch out. He wanted to go see adventure. And don't we all have that, especially as dudes to some extent? You look at the world around you and you think to yourself, I want to see it, man. I want to touch it. I want to taste it. I want to experience life. And you, he experienced life. So he struck out on the ocean. Remember, this is a time long before Carnival Cruise Lines. This is a time of piracy. There's no GPS. The ocean, even if the pirates don't get you, is an extremely rough, dangerous place. You don't get to pull up your weather app in the middle of the Pacific and, oh, it looks like we got a hurricane coming. It should be here in exactly 12 days because it's rounding the Cape of Africa. The hurricane just comes and you're dead. So Hugh makes his way from Scranton, Pennsylvania, down into the Gulf of Mexico where he works on a ship and works his way up because this dude is intelligent intelligent and a leader and brave. And soon he is the captain of a ship in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, he's the captain of a ship until the year 1816 when he comes across a man named Jean Lafitte. Now, Jean Lafitte was part privateer, part pirate, which if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty are just two of the same thing. Privateer is just a pirate who gets hired by a country to do piracy. (laughs) Now, contrary to the movies and contrary to popular belief, most pirates did not get on board the ship and make you walk the plank and kill every man, woman, and child. Don't get me wrong. They were very violent. They killed plenty of people. But pirates were always looking to make their own crews a little bigger, a little stronger. And so when you're a pirate crew, 
and you come across young Hugh, who's the captain, clearly knows his way around a boat. The dude is clearly large. They just got done fighting with the guy and knows, and they know he knows how to handle himself. They give you a very simple choice. Well, we can cut your head off right now, or you can become a pirate with us. And he made the same decision most of us would make. You know what? The pirate life sounds like it's for me. Actually, that's going to be fine. Hugh didn't want to be there, but signed on to be a pirate. There are disputes how long he was a pirate. Some say a year, some say two. Eventually, he gets close enough to Galveston. Those of you not down in this Houston area should know this. Galveston is essentially a long strip of an island southeast of Houston. And the area, the ocean around Galveston is extremely, extremely shallow in certain places. Hugh knew this, bailed off the boat with a friend and escaped the pirates. Woo! Life is good. He made it to the shore. Well, this is not Galveston in the year 2020. This is Galveston in the year 1818, and Texas was a very, very, very dangerous place at this time. Especially the Galveston area because it was full of Karankawa Indians. Now, they were supposedly very brave warriors. They also ate people. One thing I found when I was redoing some reading on this last night that I think you'll enjoy is a quick side note. TexasIndians.com is where I got this. I love this part. This, I don't know why this just killed me, Chris. It says, quote, one false myth is that they were cannibals. Yes, they sometimes ate the captured enemy warriors and leaders after a battle or war, but they didn't do it for food. <laughs> Look, uh, with all due respect to TexasIndians.com, that, that's, that's still cannibalism. If, if somebody's going to cook me and eat me, is the reasoning behind it really that important? I mean, it's no big deal. They're going to eat me, but it's not for food. It's fine. So Hugh and his buddy managed to actually avoid the Karankawa Indians. And they make their way through Texas. Again, Texas is a very dangerous place because once you avoid the Karankawa Indians at this time, you have to deal with the Comanche. Now, let me step aside again briefly and let you know the Comanche Indians were not just Indians that you got to see in the various John Wayne movies like I've seen my entire life. Comanche Indians were something unique. They mastered riding horses very similar to the way the Mongols did. And they slaughtered everybody. They very, very, very much so competed with the United States Army for a long time in Texas. They had a massive empire, and they were a juggernaut. Those Apache Indians we all love, you know, Geronimo, the Apaches, the fierce warriors, the amazing Apaches. Do you know the reason the Apaches were over there in the uh, New Mexico, Arizona area? Yeah, they used to be in Texas, and they ran for their lives from the Comanches. The Comanches were beasts, and you did not want to get caught by the Comanches, let me tell you what. And they didn't. Hugh and his buddy, whoo, we made it past the Comanches. We're good to go. We're in Kansas now, baby, except the Pawnee Indians captured them. 
Now, when the Pawnee Indians captured them, this is how we began our story. But, oh, man, are we not even close to the end of our story. This is when the Pawnees shot those little pine slivers into Hugh's buddy, lit him up like a torch, and then approached Hugh because he was next. Well, Hugh Glass was cool as a cucumber. He produced this powder that he had stolen from the pirates, totally straight-faced, and offered it to the chief as a gift. The chief looks down at this powder, looks up at Hugh. Hang on, I'll tell you what happens next. Talk Radio Revolution, Jesse Kelly. Village Chief looks down at Hugh Glass's offer and he says to himself, you know what? This guy's just all right. They cut Hugh Glass loose from his pole and basically adopt him. He took to Indian life very well. Again, this is a man who, think about the life he's lived so far. This is a man who lives a life of adventure. And the Pawnee took him in and showed him how to survive in the wild. They showed him how to hunt. They showed him how to fish. They showed him how to use a tomahawk. They showed him how to use a knife. Taught him how to use a weapon. We're talking a four-year immersion in the ways of the Pawnee. Would serve him very, very well in the days to come. Eventually, Hugh decides he's going to leave because this is clearly a man who can't sit still. And he finds out the Ashley Henry Fur Company is putting together an expedition. Let me explain something about fur companies before I go any further. It's very difficult for us to understand how gigantic and lucrative the fur industry was back in the day. Here's the best way I can describe it. Think about it like oil today. Let's say you're a young, adventurous man And you find out in Siberia, there are some extremely, extremely rich oil wells up there. You just have to get there. And if you manage to get there, and you certainly might die, but if you manage to get there, you can go from being a young, poor, adventurous young man to being a young, adventurous, very, very wealthy young man. These furs were nothing like you can think of now, and they shipped them around the world, especially beaver pelts, but all furs. I mean, they were, I mean, everybody wanted them. You know, I realize there's a whole animal rights component to that, but the truth is what's better than animal fur? As far as a design goes for something that is waterproof, and warm, um, God hasn't been topped. So, <laughs> so if you're looking for something like that, yes, 
Picking something he designed over something Hugo Boss designed is probably a very good idea. Well, that was another era. But be that as it may, just know that whole fur companies started specifically to trap and get these furs, and it was big money. Big money, like a gold rush type thing. So the Ashley Henry Fur Company puts together an expedition. Now, remember the era we're in here. Again, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this. This expedition is leaving the Missouri area, the Kansas, Missouri, that area, which is about as far west as civilization went. I need to stress that point. Yes, there were forts and things out west by this point, but it is wild. There aren't massive booming cities. This is even before the 1849 gold rush. I mean, there are people, but there aren't many of them. You're taking off up the Missouri River, heading towards the Dakotas, heading towards Montana. You are essentially, back in this day, heading towards the moon. You are hopping on a boat, heading into the Amazon. You are heading into the unknown. So a group of young men, a bunch of them, a bunch of trappers and fighters, sign on to the Ashley Henry Fur Company, and they're heading to Montana for pelts. A 1,500-mile trip. And at one point in time, as they're making their way towards it, They've come across some Arikara Indians. Now, I'm going to call them Re-Indians because that's what they called them. They called them Re's. They're Arikaras, but they call them Re's. And they sit down and they have a very cordial conversation with these Indians. They get some guidance here, guidance there, and they trade. You know, hey, we have some gunpowder for you here and you have this for us. And it was a very cordial relationship until that night when the storms came and the Rees double-crossed them and tracked them down and killed almost all of them, the fur trappers. Of course, they did not kill Mr. Hugh Glass. He and about 10 to a dozen men, we don't know exactly, managed to make it out of there alive, only they're still one wounded and two being hunted by these Rees. These Rees were warlike people, did not want the white men there catching furs. So they hunker down for a while. They recover, and then they have to figure out, okay, well, we have to get out of here. We are in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and there's a fort up on the Yellowstone. It's about 300 miles away. We can't risk a boat. We don't even have one anymore anyway, even if we could build one. We have to go on foot. And so these mountain men, they called them old coons. That's what they called each other. These old coons begin to make their way through the wilderness, being hunted down by Indians who want scalps. Again, this is not something in the movies, although they made a movie about this whole story. This is reality. And here's the issue when you're men traveling that way on foot, no horses, no boats, and being hunted down by Indians, you have to eat. Food doesn't miraculously come down from the heavens unless you're the Israelites who just escaped Egypt. You have to eat. And you need to shoot your weapon to eat. And Indians have ears too. So they had to be very, very careful 
how much they shot their weapons, how much they ate. Nevertheless, it had to happen. You have to walk 300 miles. So Hugh sets out. They would set aside two or three men at a time to go out on a hunt. And Hugh sets out because he was, of course, one of the better ones on a hunt. Starts looking around for food. Comes across, well, the worst thing you can ever come across in the wilderness. Now, let me step aside for a moment and explain. You see, Hugh Glass came across baby bear cubs, grizzly bear cubs. I grew up in Montana. I moved there when I was 10. And you just learn different ways to survive. You learn different things when you're up there. You just have to grow up in different ways. And one thing you know, whether it be black bear or grizzly bear, whatever it is, if you ever, ever come across bear cubs, if you even see them a mile away, you turn around and you sprint in the opposite direction. Because bear, mama bears, do not mess around. You don't have to be playing with them. You don't have to be shooting them, stabbing them, harassing them, feeding them berries. If a mama bear sees you anywhere near her bear cubs, she is going to rip your face off. That's how bear are. Especially grizzlies, but black bear are the same way. Black bear kill people for the same reasons. All those bear attacks you hear about up in Montana, and they have them every year. People die from them. They're all, pretty much all of them, 99.9% are female grizzly bears who had cubs with them. And here's the problem. You don't know. What if the cubs are sitting there quiet, which they often are, and you come across them? You don't know. These hikers don't know. And Hugh Glass was as experienced as anyone alive in the wilderness. He didn't know. Come through a grove of trees, and he's staring at some bear cubs. He's smart enough to know this is not a good situation. Begins to back away. Oh, but... Mama Grizzly already smelled him. You see, bear have the best noses that I know of on the planet. You know, bloodhounds, how amazing bloodhounds are at smelling. Bear, I forget what the number is, are several times. It's something like one or 200 times greater their noses are than bloodhounds. That's why bear spray actually works. Their noses are so incredibly sensitive. She smelled Hugh Glass, saw Hugh Glass, she charged Hugh Glass. Now, Hugh, again, cool as a cucumber, lever, levels his rifle, fires his one shot, and it didn't work. hit that grizzly bear with that one shot he had in his musket but it is a grizzly bear and understand this this can be difficult for people who don't understand how big and massively powerful grizzly bears are for one if you were to hold up the paw of a grizzly bear it is easily the size of your head easily they're horrifying go ahead and google the image of i love them that bear they're fascinating creatures I have seen video, not heard stories, I've seen video before of a grizzly bear taking down a 2,000-pound moose 
carrying it in its mouth and the ease with which the bear is ragdolling this 2,000-pound moose is it was something to watch. It might have been 1,500, but it was a big, big animal, and it looked like your dog with a little squeaky toy in its mouth. They're just big, and they're pure muscle. Lewis and Clark actually wrote about this when they did their famous expedition out west because they obviously had muskets as well, and they had never seen these before. This was the expedition where they were going out to see what's out here. For all we know, there are aliens out west. And they went, and you can still read it in their journals. They talked about these grizzly bear, and they thought that they were monsters. They would shoot them seven or eight times with those old muskets, and the bear would not die. To this day, you know, that weapon you use as a personal carry weapon, I mean, my personal carry weapon is a 9 millimeter. You might as well just throw the gun at the bear. I'm not exaggerating. A 9 millimeter will not even penetrate a bear's skull. It certainly will not stop a, a charging one. I, and I have rounds in my 9 millimeter that will make your heart explode. It will not even slow down a grizzly bear. You take a 44 Magnum and bear spray when you're in bear country. So obviously an old musket and ball, even a big one like the one Hugh Glass had. He had a special rifle. He loved it. Even that did not do the trick. She got to him, and she ripped him to shreds. Her claws, you can imagine a bear's claws if you've never seen them. At one point in time, she raked the claws across the front of his throat, doing a lot of damage. She ripped his face to shreds. She tore into his leg and broke it. She bit his arm, as you can imagine. He was trying to defend himself from having his face ripped off anymore. At one point, as a defense mechanism, this is just human nature, he rolls over trying to make it stop, at which point a bear just starts tearing into your back. A lot of grizzly attacks end this way. It starts ripping open his back. The attack ends, and you can actually, by all accounts, see his ribs through his back. His throat which got the claws across them, or he was gurgling. You could hear it. He was barely alive, barely conscious. Now you have an issue, don't you? Because here you are being hunted down by Indians in the middle of the wilderness, and you have an injured man, and by all accounts, a dying man. Now, to the credit of the men who were with him, when they found him, they didn't leave him there. They didn't shoot him. They made for him, you know, a litter to carry him with, and they carried him for two or three days. There are conflicting reports on how long they carried him. But here's the truth. These men were scared to death. The Indians were still coming. They knew they were coming. The Indians were just looking for them. As soon as they found them, they were all going to die. You can't carry a man through terrain like that with any kind of speed, certainly not the kind of speed these men would have been moving at otherwise. You have to stop. You have to give him water. You have to care for him. And he's in and out of consciousness. He's not speaking. He can't speak. He doesn't have a throat. And so the leader of this group, Henry, remember, this was the Ashley Henry Fur Company, and Henry 
has to make a very, very difficult decision. And he decides he needs two men to stay with Hugh while Hugh dies so they can give him a proper burial after he dies. Now, as you may imagine, there weren't a ton of hands going up when he asked for volunteers to stay in Indian country with a dying man and possibly have your scalp carved off the top of your head while you're still alive. So he had to throw in a little extra cheddar cheese in the deal, and I believe it was seven months. He he promised whoever stayed back an extra seven months' wages. He finally got two volunteers, and Mr. John Fitzgerald and a kid, I believe he was 19 at the time, Jim Bridger. Just a, That is very much a kid. Hugh Glass was 40 at this point. Now, Hugh was old for an, a mountain man, but 19 is a puppy. You haven't even lived life yet. That's awfully young. John Fitzgerald and Jim Bridger agree to stay back. And they stay with him for a day. He doesn't die. And they stay with him for another day. And he doesn't die. And this guy's not dying. And we need to get out of here before we all die. And John Fitzgerald and Jim Bridger are figuring out what to do. They're shooing the flies away from him as best they can. They're right by a little stream. They're giving him as much cool water as they can, but that's not doing much of anything. And finally... Mercifully, he breaks out into a horrible fever, and Fitzgerald says, yes, he's about to die. This is, this is it. He's got the death sweats, they called it. And he doesn't die. And now they don't know what to do. We can't stay here. We're just two men. We can't fight off a whole group of angry re-Indians. We're all going to die. What are we going to do? We can't leave him. And they make a decision. John Fitzgerald was apparently the leader. He was the more experienced. He was the older one. Jim Bridger, according to Jim Bridger and others, was very uncomfortable with this. But they begin having this conversation right in front of Hugh Glass. Unbeknownst to them, Hugh Glass couldn't speak, didn't have his eyes open, but could hear every single word as they sat there beside him and discussed well, let's leave him and we'll just tell everyone he's dead. Now, you can't show back up with to the group if you're John Fitzgerald and Jim Bridger empty-handed. They're going to be like, "Uh, wait, what? Are you are you sure he died?" So, I mean, you can't leave valuables out in the wilderness, rifles and things. So, not only did they leave him laying there, they took his musket, they took his powder, They took the shot that goes with it. They took his tomahawk. They took his flint. They took his knife. They took everything of of value off his person, threw a buffalo blanket on him, and walked away. Only Hugh Glass wasn't dead yet. And Hugh Glass was not a man who wanted to die. There he is laying by a stream with a buffalo blanket on, one broken leg, only one arm of any use, looks up and sees some buffalo berries there. Now he has a throat that is no longer there, so he has to use the stream water and smash the buffalo berries up with the stream water and gut things down with his ripped open throat to get some nourishment inside of him. 
a day or two of this and he sees a rattlesnake coming his way, you would be petrified. You're not Hugh Glass. Neither am I. Hugh Glass kills the rattlesnake with his one good arm with the rock he had there manages to smash enough of the rattlesnake meat up that he can gut it down as well on his damaged throat. And now Hugh Glass only wants one thing in the world, and no, it's not to live. He wants to go kill John Fitzgerald and Jim Bridger. That's all he wants in life. So he rolls over on his belly and starts to crawl. Glass, 250 miles away from the nearest fort, begins to crawl with one broken leg, which he had to set himself, obviously with no anesthesia, and one good arm. He crawls. Now, this is a man severely wounded, still fighting fever, one arm and one leg. So when I say it was slow going, I mean slow going. Eventually, his arm and leg would just give out and he would have to lay there for a day. Work up his strength again and continue to crawl on. Hugh has a bigger problem, though. Infection. Now... The front of him miraculously was okay, but remember, he was laying on his back by that stream, and his back was shredded by that grizzly bear with deep, deep, deep lacerations and infections coming, and he can smell it, and he can feel it, and infection's going to kill him quickly. So he finds maggots. Maggots. While this is not the most pleasant thought in the world, eat away dead flesh. Dead flesh is where the bacteria grows, and he puts maggots into, the, into his own wounds in his back to eat out the infection. And he continues to crawl. He comes across... A freshly killed buffalo carcass, but the problem is it's freshly killed by the wolves that are surrounding the buffalo carcass, but you are not some dainty little flower. You are Hugh freaking glass. So what's he do? He starts a fire somehow. Someone's going to have to explain to me how he managed to start a fire with nothing else. Manages to chase the wolves away. From the dead buffalo with the fire and breaks off the bones that he can and sucks the marrow out of the buffalo, which probably tasted like heaven for one and two is absolutely nutrient rich. And he keeps crawling. And then Indians find him. But fear not. These are not the re who found him. These were actually Sioux. Now, the American people went to war with the Sioux people several times at several different places throughout our history. I mean, the Battle of Little Bighorn, who do you think we were fighting there? General Custer, all that stuff. Chris, does that ring any bells to you? All right. 
However, these Sioux, for whatever reason, took pity on him, packed him up, picked him up, and took off for Fort Kiowa, where he thought Jim Bridger and John Fitzgerald were going to be. The Sioux finally get him there, and neither of those guys are there. They've already taken off. Okay? That's fine. You're still Hugh Glass. You're not exactly one to lay down and take it. So what's he do? He has nothing. He signs on with a new fur company because they promised to give him a rifle and equipment and everything if he'll sign on and do some trapping for them and also take him to where he can go kill the two guys. He takes off with this fur company. They go in and sit down with some unknown Indians. They didn't know who they were at the time. It occurs to Hugh Glass halfway through the meeting, uh uh-oh, these are actually re-Indians. And the Indians attacked and killed everybody Hugh was with except for Hugh managed to escape again. Barely. Now, he finally makes his way To a new fort, he finds Jim Bridger. Remember the kid? Jim Bridger was broken, felt horribly guilty, begged Hugh's forgiveness. Remember, Hugh got to hear the whole conversation and realized this was just a young, dumb kid, didn't know what he was doing. Hugh forgives him. To this day, actually, I grew up in Bozeman, Montana. The major mountain range, one of them that's right beside Bozeman, is the Bridger Mountains. Jim Bridger went on to have a famous, famous mountain man career after this. Maybe the most famous mountain man ever. But Hugh Glass still wants to kill John Fitzgerald. So he takes off again, heading towards the fort where he hears John Fitzgerald is. And he gets attacked by Indians again. And this time he actually loses the brand new rifle that he had gotten. Only he's alone in the wilderness again. But this time he has a tomahawk, he has a knife, he has a flint. And by his own account, he said, look, compared to last time, I thought I was living well. Yeah, I don't have a rifle, but I'm living high on a hog here. And tell me if this isn't one of the coolest parts of the story. He survives, he says, with relative ease, making his way to the other fort, killing baby buffalo with a knife and eating them along the way. (laughs) What a beast. What an absolute stud. How does that even work? Eventually, though... He finally walks into a fort, and before him stands Mr. John Fitzgerald, who left him to die, took his rifle, which he still had, and everything else. Hang on. most you've ever hated anybody in your life 
hopefully not too much, right? We don't need to be full of bitterness. But try, try to wrap your mind around how much Hugh Glass hated John Fitzgerald at this very moment. And not just, not just this moment. Imagine when your leg is broken and your body's ripped to shreds and you have one good arm as well. And you're crawling with the face, with your face in the dirt, eating roots and things. How much would John Fitzgerald be on your mind with every single crawl? With every single minute of the day passing by? You'd hate him. And according to Hugh, that was what got him through. Isn't that amazing? It wasn't some will to live. All he wanted to do in life from that point on was kill John Fitzgerald for what he did for him. <laughs> it's kind of sweet, right? That's all he wanted to do in life was kill John Fitzgerald. Though so he finally makes his way into the fort. And there's John Fitzgerald with Hugh Glass's rifle, which he loves. Hang on. The Jesse Kelly Show. This is the Jesse Kelly Show. Hugh Glass walks into that fort. And let me just totally buzzkill you on, well, not the end, but how that worked out. Turns out John Fitzgerald had joined the freaking army. And Hugh Glass cannot walk into an army fort and shoot someone in the army or Hugh Glass is going to be killed. They did understand his story. They gave Hugh Glass his rifle back. Hugh Glass finished the encounter simply telling John Fitzgerald, don't ever leave the army or I'm going to kill you. And he walked away. And you may call this tragic. I call this beautiful in its own way. Hugh Glass went on to be exactly what you think he would be. An extreme loner. He would ride off into the wild wilderness all by himself and come back with just a pile of furs. He never stopped. He never slowed down. Finally, at the age of 50... He was walking along the frozen Yellowstone River with two trapper friends of his. And lo and behold, those re-Indians finally got a hold of him. Killed him and his two friends. Scalped him. And were last seen riding off with that famous rifle Hugh had to track down all those years before. And the question is, And we've had this talk before on the show, but it's time to have a very frank talk about it. What do you think about Hugh Glass's life? 
You undoubtedly admire it. You like hearing about it. Who doesn't? Who wouldn't like hearing about something that that's awesome? Do you want that to be your life? It's really what it comes down to, right? The guy has a big plaque where he was attacked by that grizzly bear. I believe it's in South Dakota. You can go see it to this day. Do you want that life? He was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania. What if he grew up in Scranton and never went down to become a pirate? Never escaped various Indians. Never saw his buddy burned alive. Never got attacked by a grizzly bear. Never ended up getting killed and scalped. Never. What if he grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania? Just had a nice, safe life, right? This is Scranton, Pennsylvania. Opened up a little candy shop down the road. Get yourself a little wife. Crank out a few kids. Make a little money, spend a little money, build yourself a nice little house, die at the ripe old age of 80 in your bed in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Is that a better life than the one he had? We all have to ask ourselves this question, especially now. And I'm asking you this for this reason. I am not trying to be a downer. I am telling you we are heading into an era that is different than any era you and I have ever known. Virus, economic dislocation like you cannot possibly imagine. What if What if there's no Disney World in a couple months? What if cruise ships virtually go away? What if air travel completely changes? Hotels? Concerts? When's the next time you think you're going to go to a concert? What if, hear me out, what if we have 10, 15, 20% contraction of the U.S. economy? Think about this. Now, that's a complicated thing. You may not know what I mean, so think about it this way. Think about 10 stores that you frequent. Restaurants, hardware, whatever it may be. Now imagine three or four of those disappearing. Think about your neighbors. Think about 10 of your neighbors. Think about two or three of them foreclosing on their home and being gone in a month or two. If we are really heading into these hard times we are possibly heading into, if we are, we are going to talk through it. We're going to laugh on this show. We're going to go over the headlines. We're going to, I'll tell you my take on things, but don't lose sight of this. You can call me crazy all you want. We've talked about it before. Isn't that, in its own way, kind of cool? Yes, suffering, disaster. I understand it. But you can 
sit around and lick your wounds and wallow in your sorrow. And you always find to take a little time to mourn every now and then. I'm not telling you, hey, people are dying and the economy's destroyed. But at some point, you are going to die, right? Do you think Hugh Glass had an amazing life, amazing life, or a horrible life? Let me ask you this. Would you ever have heard his name had he been a little candy shop owner in Scranton, Pennsylvania? You never would have known that man existed. You never would have known his stories. You never would have known his quotes. You never would have known his friends. You never would have known he existed. That man has been in the ground for a long, long, long time. And I just told his story to the nation of the United States of America. They made a movie about it. They took a lot of liberties with the story, which I didn't think they needed to take. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was in it. It was called The Revenant, but it was an awesome awesome movie that really did drive home some of these things and allowed you to visualize it. So go rent The Revenant today. You will enjoy it. Or maybe it's free on Netflix or Prime or something if you're dead broke like most of us are. Go watch it. That's his story. They don't make a movie about Hugh Glass, the candy shop owner who died safely and calmly in his bed at 80. Did he experience... A world of pain and suffering in his life? You bet he did. More than I ever want to experience. But talk about dying with some stories. Talk about a life to remember. And what if that's what we're facing right now? Something different than anybody you've ever known in your life alive today has experienced. Isn't that in its own way kind of cool? I say it is. Now, you can say I'm just putting a rosy spit on things, and maybe that's true. Some of that probably is true. I will tell you, one of the things we did often in the Marine Corps when things were really ugly and dark and miserable, one of the things we did often and people who were watching us if they were from on the outside would have thought we were nuts. We would laugh. We would tell the sickest, darkest jokes you could possibly imagine. We would be stuck in a horrible, miserable, dangerous situation. And we would just look at each other and we would just start laughing hysterically. I don't mean a little giggle because what else can you do? We'll roll with the punches. We'll take it as it comes. You can disagree all you want. You're welcome to email me, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. Jesse at jessekellyshow.com. I say dying with grizzly bear wounds and no scalp on your head at 50. I say that's a cool life. The Jesse Kelly Show. I want to die with some stories. And you know what's funny, Chris? I noticed it today. 
It's really funny. Traffic's getting bad again. I just saw a picture of some guy, uh, some reporter in L.A. posted a picture up of their highway. Traffic's getting bad again. And you know what that means, don't you people? You know what that means. What have I been warning you about? Part of the problem with telling people to go lock in their homes, part of the issue is they won't do it. Not for as long as you say they need to do it. That's why I've always honestly gotten the biggest belly laugh out of, well, we may need to do this for a year, year and a half. How much of an out-of-touch idiot do you have to be to even think that's possible? <laughs> and again, if I walk into my doctor's office, let's say I'm having some heart problems, and they uh, they, they they do all the stuff where they look at your heart, and they look at all your arteries, and... They have a little sit-down with me in my doctor's office. And everybody knows I love food. You know I love food, right? I love Velveeta. I love Red Lobster. I love cheeseburgers and steaks and pizzas and tacos. And I go and I sit down in my doctor's office, and my doctor says to me, Well, Jesse, uh, look, you got some clogged arteries there. So here's what we need to do. Well, I need you to make a couple of adjustments here, maybe... Maybe cut back on the carbs a little. Uh, I've, I've got this really low-level medication. I want to get you on and dial things back, and we'll just see if we can't clean this up. That's a good doctor. He gave me a workable, livable solution that suits my lifestyle. If I walk in my doctor's office with all those heart problems and he sits me down and says, Jesse, here's what we need to do. I'm going to write you this prescription And it's going to knock you out for 14, 15 hours a day. Also, your diet, you can't eat anything you like anymore. I'm going to actually tell you, you have to eat three green beans a day, and that's all for the rest of your life. Is that a good doctor? Even if he's right. Even if that keeps me alive. Is that a good doctor to sit down and prescribe something that's not even close to humanly possible? That's not a good doctor. That's a bad doctor. That's what's always cracked me up. Actually, speaking of something like that, not to get sidetracked here, it's always cracked me up about these these fitness people that try to help someone out who's too fat. And you got somebody who's, who's never worked out ever. And he's 350 pounds of goo, and he's trying to get his life in check. And he's, he wants he wants to stay alive, wants to get healthier, and that's awesome. It's a good thing. And he comes, he goes to some personal trainer, and the person, all right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna work out for five hours a day starting tomorrow. Okay, well that's a bad trainer. That's not possible. If you're massively overweight and you want to get healthy, go for a walk. A light one today. Go for another one tomorrow. Walk a little further next week. Lose enough weight that'll turn into a jog. Lift some light weights. Prescriptions from anybody, doctor, personal trainer, business, 
pastor, counselor, whatever it may be, either they're possible or they're bad prescriptions. We have highways filling up in L.A. We have highways filling up in Houston. And I know that because I just drove in them this morning. Why are they filling up? Because you told a nation of 327 million people that the medical solution was to go lock yourself in your home and never leave. And people won't do it. You might as well have told them to sprout wings and fly. If it's a bad solution, if it's not a possible solution, then you're a bad doctor. I'm sorry. You are. You're a bad doctor. On top of everything else, the the absolute repugnant violation of rights in this country has stunned me. What Americans have been willing to give up has stunned me. And you know what inspires me? That people are getting sick of that crap, too. Listen to this uh, New Jersey Governor Murphy, I think his name was, on Tucker Carlson. So um, you made that decision, and as I noted before, 15 congregants at a synagogue in New Jersey were arrested and charged for being in a synagogue together. Now, the Bill of Rights, as you well know, protects Americans' right, enshrines their right to practice their religion as they see fit and to congregate together to assemble peacefully. By what authority did you nullify the Bill of Rights in issuing this order? How do you have the power yeah, to we do were, that? That's above my pay grade, Tucker. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't thinking of the Bill of Rights when we did this. We went to all, first of all, we looked at the data well, and tell. the science, and it says pe- people have to stay away from each other. Uh, that's the best thing we could do to break the back of the curve of this virus. Oh, I never really thought about it. <laughs> I don't even think about it. I talked about it yesterday. And you're about to hear this at the federal level. I heard Cuomo talking about it yesterday extensively, and I'm not even going to bother playing you you the audio clip, but it doesn't creep you out at all to hear governors stand up and say, well, these businesses are essential, and what we're going to do is I'm going to sit down and I'm going to come up with more businesses I think are essential based on, on what I think people need. And based on whether or not I think the business can open, who are you to determine what's essential or not? Are you my king now? I'm just going to sit down and decide what's essential or not. Are we okay with this? (laughs) Have we completely lost our freaking minds? We're just going to be, oh, well, I'm not really sure if that's essential. Um... I guarantee the guy who makes his living off it thinks it's daggone essential. I promise you he does. And we do this thing where government tosses a couple bucks your way. Headline, free beacon. Congress's fund to backstop paychecks is officially out of money. Gee, what a shock. Who told you that was coming? Me. You allocated $349 billion dollars to do some kind of payroll protection thing when you lined up a $20 trillion economy on the side of a ditch and shot it in the back of the head. $340 billion is nothing. 
It is the equivalent to Hugh Glass watching his buddy burn alive beside him and offering him a glass of water to drink as he burns. That's all it is. Of course it ran out of money in about five seconds. That's not a solution. On top of all the ways that money was undoubtedly misspent, blown, total disaster. Total disaster. I feel like I'm in the twilight zone watching the dumbest stuff I've ever seen in my life not only happen, be just almost universally accepted as the right thing to do. Well, we have to lock down. But look, here, here's the deal. I'm going to decide which businesses are essential. And of, no, you can't have church. Go ahead and try that. I'll arrest you on the spot. Wait, what? What? <laughs> Gosh, jeez. All right, Chris. You know what? We're going to make fun of Obama. Just because I need a coronavirus break. And that always makes me feel better. Ooh. And I'll tell you about my kids becoming waiters. Hang on. Force PJ and host of World News with BK, the only weekly podcast you need, people. BK, I'm looking at highways or pictures of highways this morning in Los Angeles, and they're filling up with cars. I drove to work this morning in Houston, and my highway, my traffic was a lot worse than it has been, brother. What's happening out there? Yeah, you know what? It's funny. Anecdotally, I noticed for sure this week there are way more people on the streets than there are last week. And, you know, it's like you and I talked about. You can only let people, you can only trap people inside for so long, you know. This isn't like communist China where we're going to throw people in gulags for not listening to the government authorities. So people are definitely out here at least starting to buck for sure. And I'm just like looking at the you know, live updates page and what's going on. Thankfully, it does look like some states are getting ready to open. I did notice, I can't believe this, beaches in Duval County, Florida, are looking to reopen finally this Friday. Now, out here, and Jesse, you know me, I'm all about the public health aspect of it. I am all about the social distancing, the mask in public, fine, all that stuff. But the fact that the beaches are closed out here in Southern California right now, where it's damn near like 80 degrees, is ridiculous i mean and that's part of like so many things like these parks and beaches that's part of like our mental health the fresh air the exercise i mean it's part of it's good for morale for people to see me striding down the beach uh, you know, the tan is on point uh, the ab veins are popping jesse uh, you get all geez. the half naked pictures i send you uh, you've seen it jesse gosh. By the way, stop sending me shirtless pictures of yourself when I text you and ask to come on the show. It's making me uncomfortable. By the That's way, not going to happen. All right. All right. I need, are you trying to say, are you trying to say that fresh air 
and sunshine and exercise is actually a better way to avoid getting sick than staying in a thousand unit apartment complex breathing recirculated air. Is that what you're saying? You know, it's funny. I, I noted on the podcast, you know, the the uh, the urban planners in California out here for decades have hated the way we're laid out out here because we have you know a lot more. It's all freeway, right? It's all these suburban single family home neighborhoods and they really wish that we'd be like more more like new york city you know these high-rise apartment buildings the mass transit and i i wonder if like this virus has kind of like squashed that out here at least for a while because i know jerry brown our previous governor was pushing for that hard you know the bigger high rises the more urban density the more housing like that and i just wonder if that is like dead and gone forever out here what is the attitude, because I know you've traveled around quite a bit, just the various things that you've done. What is the attitude difference in California and New York? I'm not talking about the idiot politicians. Most of those are the same. But what is the general attitude difference? Well, I, I will say out here, I think there was a lot more initial compliance uh, because maybe it's partially because, you know, that rep that Californians have of being all health conscious and everything. I really don't know. I think there's going to be so many papers written on this when it's all over, but I think that there was a lot of compliance. I will tell you, in San Diego, where I am, people shut it down pretty hard, like right off the bat. The mask wearing, a couple days ago I was out, I mean, 95% of people are wearing the masks. People are walking around each other on the sidewalk, you know, giving each other the wide berth. I don't know. And the politicians out here were uh, also telling people and making these dire warnings. Now, you compare that to New York City. Again, I think this was always going to happen, right? We had hundreds of thousands of flights getting here from China in December, January, February. I think this was always going to happen, Jesse, in a place like New York City where just the urban density and all that population, I just think it was always going to happen. There's nothing you could have ever done about it. I'm worried, BK, about... Governors now, let's let's assume, I and mean, he already started hinting at it last night, let's assume Donald Trump reverses course, says we need to start opening up again, which is inevitable when you look at these economic numbers, which I'm stunned these idiots didn't see coming. But, okay, he says let's start opening up again. I'm worried about governors not necessarily having an incentive to do so. When 51% of the, popu- 51% of the population in their states still wants to stay locked down, and it's probably at least that, and they can hurt Donald Trump's economy and thus his reelection chances. Why is Gavin Newsom going to open back up? What's his motivation at all? Well, you know, they, they have to win an election too, right? And the job losses are insane. Do you know that more than 22 Amer- million Americans have lost their Ugh. jobs? And that, that is a toll that roughly matches the entire cumulative workforce of 23 of the 50 states. That's an incredible number. And uh, you know what? I, I think the problem is, which has always been, is that this was attacked as a one-size-fits-all approach. I think for some governors, yeah, maybe it is to start reopening. For others, it isn't. But, you know, the, it, it really is striking the difference between what Trump says and he stands up there every day and gets barked at by hostile media. I mean, Gavin Newsom came out in his press conferences and just stated, oh, yeah, if we don't do anything, 22 million of Californians are going to have this virus. And he didn't even take questions on it. Nobody even asked him where that number came up. I think right now in California statewide and granted with all the social distancing measures, you know, we're sitting at about 30,000 cases, 35,000 cases, something like that. But that's a friggin' long way off from that amount. 
and again, they do have to win election as well. Their coffers are going to be drained hard, Jesse. I know you know that. Would you rather be attacked by a grizzly bear or a shark? Um, see, I think I'd rather be attacked by the shark because I have a, an affinity for bears. Um, I've demanded that the veterans service organizations send me a service bear. So I really <laughs> love and have a deep love of bears. Yeah. So I, I could kill a shark, no problem, cruelly even. But even as a share would be, if a bear was even mauling me, it would be very, very difficult even to fight back, Jesse. I would want to pet it, roll around with it take them down to the beach. We can go walk around, show off our ab veins, you know, the whole deal. Yeah, you know how it is. You are such an idiot. I didn't ask what you were going to kill. These things are going to kill you. I'm talking a big, great white shark. Nobody's going to kill me. I'm a highly trained commando, Jesse. Nobody kills me. (laughs) What's the coolest thing about parachuting out of an airplane? Is it cold up there? Yes, it's freezing cold, uh, it, and there's nothing really cool about it to me. He's like, I'm, I was scared every time, so it was just part of the job. But yeah, I mean, those PJs up in Alaska, man, those oh. guys get those guys don't get paid enough. Those oh. dudes are jumping out, and the air temperature at their altitude sometimes is like you know 40 below. I mean, I'm like it's it's a, it's a no go for me. I've I've tried to explain this to people that cold weather dudes are just harder than everybody else, that cold breaks down your inner strength right. like nothing else. Am I way off base? Is there something no. like a jungle warfare guy who's better? I say the cold guys are the toughest dudes out there. No, it, it's funny because it, it makes logical – logic would dictate that cold is better than hot because with cold, so the feeling goes, you know, you can always add layers, right? So you should be fine. Mm. But there's something about cold weather, man. It just just sucks your will to live. I mean, I've been in, like, Iraq at the height of summer, like 130 degrees, full kit, you know, walking up, like, a dozen flights of stairs. And don't get me wrong, that's a total suck fest. But there's something about the cold that just makes you, like, just want to lay down and give it up and just die. So I don't have that with heat. What does a weirdo super health freak like you eat for breakfast? Do you eat some pine nuts or something and call it good? Do you even eat breakfast? You probably eat one meal I was going to say. Bro, I was gonna say, who eats breakfast? Oh. Breakfast is for breakfast is for losers. Oh, Come on my now. Gosh, you are such a <laughs> dork. That's a no go. Oh, BK is the host of World News with BK. His his program's a little bit more vulgar than mine, but it is awesome. Absolutely, I download it every single week. Keep doing what you do, my brother. I appreciate it, Jesse. We'll talk to you soon. Be good. It is a good podcast, Chris. Again. I cannot stress this enough, people. You know how my show is a family show? Despite talking about burning people live and stuff. BK show, not one for the kids. But it is really, really good. You can email me, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. All right, we're finally going to make fun of Obama, and I'm going to talk about the kids. Hang on. Is he smarter than everyone? Who knows? Does he think so? Yeah. The Jesse Kelly Show. So, Chris, you know I'm big on people learning how to talk. 
learning how to enunciate words. I'm big on this. I talk about it all the time on the show. I'll talk about it again. I don't like how people, when they're asked to read something out loud, will say things like Senator Chris Murphy of the U.S. system. You're not reading. You're reading out loud. Slow down. Enunciate. When you're on the phone with somebody. Oh, I know. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. Speak out loud. Slow down. And ordering food. Big for me. And taking an order. I actually never waited tables myself. But I think everybody should work some sort of kind of retail. Do you consider that retail, Chris? Is that considered retail? What's the definition of retail? Look that up. Something. Either way, someone should have a job like that at some point. I think it teaches you about human nature. I think it's very good for you. Now, I never went into that. What? A retail is the sale of good or commodities? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, whatever. We're calling it retail. It's my freaking show. It's retail, baby. Somebody should work waiting, which is retail. Now, I sold RVs, everybody knows, so that definitely counts as retail. My point is, you'll learn how to speak with people, how to hear people. You learn what makes people tick big time. And it's good for you. It's very good for you, especially in this day and age. And let's be honest, you can fight against it all you want. But it is a more digital age. People have their faces buried in their phones, buried in their iPads. I don't love it. I don't hate it. It's just the way the world has gone. It's fine. I've got a phone I look at all day, too. I do my whole show off my phone. My whole career is there. I order food. I mean, it's everything. So it's important to have that skill. And so guess what we're doing tonight, Chris? Our boys are 9 and 11. We have decided, the wife and I, we're going to have a date night tonight. Obviously, there's no restaurants open, right? We're having a date night in the house. The boys are going to provide us a restaurant experience for money. We're going to pay them based on how they do. And when I say a restaurant experience, I mean I want to be greeted at the little host hostess's table. I want to be asked how many in my party. I want to be escorted to where we're seating, sitting. I want the area to be clean. I want there to be silverware laid out. I, I, if I want a beer, I want it. I don't want my water glass to get empty. If I want two beers, I better not be sitting there with an empty beer the entire time. I want you to tell me what the food is, even though we're going to order like DoorDash or something like that beforehand. I want you to make sure you're being conscientious. I want you to make sure you're asking me, looking me in the eye when we speak. When my plate is done, I want your little butt out there clearing it out so I'm not staring at an empty plate. I want the full experience. I want to be asked what's for dessert. I want it all. When it's all done, I want you to sit down and I want you to write out a receipt for me with how much everything costs. I then want you to figure out what 20% tip is. And you know what? I'm anxious to see how they do. And again, 
I'm not living in, you know, a tyrannical household, although I am the one calling the shots. I'm paying them for it. And I told them last night, and they know I mean it. Your pay will be determined by how well you do, period. If you want something good, you better provide me with the restaurant experience. I like it. I like it a lot. It's a lot better than this freaking lameness I saw. Coronavirus vacation. This is a headline in The Guardian. Australian family recreates a 15-hour holiday flight in their living room. Kirsty Russell said her husband Nathan, a school teacher on sabbatical, came up with the idea complete with security checks, flight attendants, and custom-printed boarding passes after the coronavirus disrupted a family holiday they'd been planning for five years. They're foreigners, so when they say holiday, they mean vacation, everybody. It started as a joke, but it actually has been quite fun, Russell told Guardian Australia for the second leg of her flight via Doha. We thought the kids would not be into it at all, but they've embraced it. We set up a lounge room as a cabin. That's their living room. Weirdos. The kids got leg room in the front. They should have planned better. The kids took, his 16-year-old, I guess, took on the role as the security officer. The 9-year-old daughter checked bags, and the 14-year-old welcomed them aboard. I guess the 16-year-old even screened their bags for contraband material. <laughs> okay. One, that actually is kind of cool. I don't mean to bag on them for for creativity. And we're, look, we're stuck at home right now. You got to do something. But my question is this, Chris. I get having your vacation canceled sucks. I get wanting to recreate the family vacation. Why are you recreating the worst freaking part of vacation, which is the flight? Why do I have to go through security? Can't we recreate the beach or something like that? Pour some sand on the kitchen floor or something. Let's get it rolling. Hang on. I see with the left all the time, Chris. And it, it, I always found it hard to understand until I really sat down and thought about it. Now, you can explain this away as the left just wanting to control everything. And that's certainly part of it. That's part of it. And what I'm talking about is Obama whining about the GOP having a propaganda network. Of course, he's talking about Fox News. You remember Obama used to whine about Fox News all the time. And part of me always thought, well, that's just what a leftist is. And this is true. Leftism is always about control. There's a reason. A hallmark of every leftist country that's ever existed was censorship. Major, major, major censorship. That was part of it. Even the theater, movies, radio. You're allowed to say this. You're not allowed to say that. You can do this, you can't do that. So on and so forth. The first thing they did in uh, after the 1917 Russian Revolution was abolish the passports. It's all about control. Well, no, you're not allowed to leave. Of course not. But there's something else to this 
and there's a real lesson in this for all of us who have kids or are thinking about having kids. There's something else to this. I'll explain. Hang on. Jesse Kelly Show. This is the Jesse Kelly Show. President Barack Obama, quote, the other side has a massive war chest. The other side has a propaganda network with little regard for the truth. And yeah, part of that obviously is the leftist obsession with control. They're obsessed with it. And I I don't need to lay out all the all the extreme examples for you, all the Nazis burning books and things like that. But look, if you want to take anything to an extreme, you can see it's an obsession with control. It's not, it's not that your opinion is wrong. It's that you shouldn't be allowed to say it. And so that's part of it. But another part of it is this, and it's really funny and I can't, Normally, I can relate to things, Chris, even things I haven't been able to experience myself, or I can try to relate to them. I don't, I don't understand this way of thinking if you're somebody on the left. I really genuinely do not. If you're someone on the left, virtually every Hollywood movie is pushing your values in some way. That's not even debatable. As someone on the right, let me just tell you, they're pushing your values. Virtually every newspaper is pushing your values. The schools, the public school system in the United States of America is pushing your values. Not even debatable. The bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy, well over 90%, I think it was 92, it might be 95, voted for Hillary Clinton. Pushing your values. The news networks. Virtually all of them push your values. Except for, what, three, four? You have my network that I'm on called The First. You have Fox News. You have OAN. You have Newsmax. But they have it all. And not only do they have the cable news opinion networks. Yeah, they've got CNN, MSNBC, all that stuff. The major networks, NBC, ABC, they push some of the worst leftist stuff out there. And so you're a leftist. You're Barack Obama. You believe in the things the left believe. And you stare out there at a sea of opinion, a sea of opinion. And you own virtually all of it. And you say to yourself, I can't believe there's anyone out there who disagrees. It's weird. Isn't it weird, Chris? And I'll tell you what it is, what I think it is. I think it's a spoiled brat syndrome. 
I don't just think it's a control thing, although that's most of it. I think they are, to be a leftist in this country, especially a leftist politician, you are the child who was coddled from the very youngest age. And at the age of one, your first birthday party, when you're basically a big wad of dough and not even aware of anything, you're given, you know, lavished with all kinds of gifts as, as relatives all around you poured on you. When you're six, seven, eight years old, you're given the newest smartphone every single year, the best of the best. You only wear the nicest clothes. You attend the fancy private school. You've been to Europe by the time you're 15 or 16. You've been to Europe on a luxury vacation six or seven times. Your first car after you got your driver's permit is a brand new Corvette. You live in a home. You also have a guest house and a pool. You've been to Disney World so many times, you asked your parents if you had to go the next time they went. And finally... You come across one person in your life who tells you, no, you can't have that. How many times have you seen that story play out with people you know, with people in your life? How does that go? That child freaks because they're conditioned. You get conditioned to things, don't you? From your earliest childhood, that's just... You get conditioned to things. I had so many people email me after I did that little brief show on on the Mongols, that brief opening on the Mongols. I had so many people email me asking about, you know, various things about them. And one of the things you need to understand when you're talking about these people who were just the best warriors ever and slaughtered everybody and they could do they could shoot a bird out of the sky on horseback at a full gallop and all these things. How, 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 how could that happen? How could that happen? They had their children on horseback at the age of three. Three. Could you even wrap your mind around that? I, look, I'm not exactly, uh, as you may imagine, an extremely protective parent. I want my kids to fall down and scrape their knee because I think it builds toughness and character. Uh, I would not have put my kid on a horse at the age of three. Are you out of your freaking mind? I don't want him to die. Not in Mongol society. Up you go, son. Time to grow up. I'm, I'm sorry, what? I can't even speak yet. You want me? Uh, what? They were conditioned. You are conditioned for certain things. And when you're a leftist, most likely, most likely, your parents were leftists. So you grew up. Leftist stuff, leftist stuff, leftist stuff. You took off for your school, public school. America sucks. America sucks. America sucks. Which, let's be honest, that's leftist stuff. Then you left the college where you really got the finishing touches on how bad America sucks and leftist stuff and leftist stuff and America's oppressive and everything sucks. You leave there. You read the New York Times. You read the Washington Post. Leftist stuff, leftist stuff, leftist stuff. You get home at night. You kick back. You put up your feet. In your beanbag chair. What do you turn on? You turn on CNN. And then one day you look around and Fox News has the highest ratings? What, what are the, 
That's not even that's not even real. How can Fox News have the highest ratings? That's that's propaganda. It's shocking to you that something else even exists out there. It is. It is. Do you want to know how leftists view the country? Well, here's Senator, United States Senator Chris Murphy talking about the coronavirus. The reason that we're in the crisis that we are today um, is not because of anything that China did. It's not because of anything the WHO did. It's because of what this president did. Hmm. Not because of anything China did? (laughs) I mean, come on. Come on. Not because of anything China did? And look, that's the reality of it. You've heard this all over the news time and time again. You've seen it in the press conferences Trump has to give with these people. You've heard Nancy Pelosi talk like that. You've heard senators talk like that. Not anything China did. That's what bugs me. That's what bugs me. I don't mind Democrat versus Republican. I don't mind left versus right. I very, very, very much mind blatant anti-America. And the truth of the matter is this. If the leftists in this country could punish one thing for this virus, it would be Donald Trump and it would not be China. What does that say? I I know I'm not supposed to use words like anti-American because that's offensive to people. What am I supposed to think? Tell me what I'm supposed to think. China didn't do, of course China did this. Of course China did this. I can disagree with a lot of the steps Trump has taken, but come on now. But don't worry, Chris. If Trump loses the next election, Joe Biden's going to take the reins. And I'm going to explain why that's a good thing here. Hang on. Jesse Kelly on air and online at jessekellyshow.com. Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm sorry. Chris, stop. I've made it a goal to stop making fun of him, okay? I'm trying to stop making fun of him because it genuinely is really sad. But again, this this entire year, I feel like is the most out-of-body experience I've ever had in my entire life. We have put 30 million people on unemployment or close to it over a virus that's killed 25,000. We... Well, um, we're about to nominate as a nation for one of our two major parties a man with very, very clear mental degeneration. And people talk about it, kind of, but they kind of don't. And they just act as if he's a normal candidate while at the same time saying things like, ah, 
this is the most important vice presidential pick ever. Well, expand on that a little bit, please. Why is Joe Biden's vice presidential pick so important? Anyone? Anyone want to go ahead and take that past the surface level? (laughs) I mean, everyone knows. Listen to this. Now, keep in mind this. Keep in mind. Again, this is why I'm going to stop making fun of him starting now, Chris. I'm going to try. Shut up. I can try. It's all about goals. He's in the most relaxed, cared-for setting that he can possibly have right now. I I have seen, I'm sure many of you have seen, or you know somebody who's seen somebody, somebody older, going through the horrendous thing that I genuinely would not wish on anybody except for ISIS, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever you want to call it, you know, going senile, whatever, whatever you want to call it, the various degrees of everything. And these people are, when they go through things like this, they get angry and mean like Joe Biden was on the campaign trail and they yell at people and poke people in the chest and call people fat and they get angry and mean because, well, for a lot of reasons, but part of it is it's so stressful for them. Their mind is going and they're not completely unaware of the fact their mind is going. And even when their mind is fine, you're looking at them like their mind is going. And it's just, these people need care and relaxation. That's what all of them need. That's what all of them get in the private world when they're not in the political world. That's very clearly what Joe Biden needs. And so right now, he's trapped in his home, right? He's an old, vulnerable guy. You can't politic right now. You can't fly anywhere. You're not taking a bus anywhere. He's trapped in his home. So this version of Joe Biden that we're seeing today is the most lucid, most relaxed, most on-point Joe Biden we're ever going to see from now on. We know his mental health is what it is. It doesn't get better from here as we go along. This Joe Biden is the best we have, a man who's relaxing in his home all day long. Wife's there, food, everything's good. Nice music, comfortable sofa, laying down in his own bed at night. And this is what he sounds like on CNN kinds of things that that have to be done. Um, You know, there's a uh, during World War Two, you know, where Roosevelt came up with a thing uh, that, uh, you know, was totally different than a than the the, it's called he called the, you know, the World War Two. He had the world, the the war production board. (laughs) Well, uh, come on. I realize that's not exactly the most profound statement in the world, but Democrat Party, come on. You can't do that, not just to your party. You can't do that to America. I mean, understand this, and I'm not thrilled about this at all. I'm not. In fact, I'm scared to death of it. But there is a chance with these economic numbers there is a very, very, very real chance Donald Trump loses his reelection bid. 
Don't scream at me. Don't turn off the radio. I approach things from a historical perspective. You know that. And history says an economy in shape like this doesn't get you reelected. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's fair. But when people are struggling, when you have 30 million people looking for work and they can't pay the bills, and they start looking eventually to blame someone. And you can do that thing I know you're doing right now that they shouldn't be blaming Trump. They can't. Bl- We're not talking about what should be. That's what your mommy tells you. I'm not your mommy. Remember, this is your daddy's show. I'm telling you the reality of life. The reality of life is Donald Trump won the presidency last time by 50,000 votes. Not 50 million, not 5 million. Not 500,000. 50,000 votes is the difference between President Donald Trump and President Hillary Clinton. Do you think 30 million people unemployed might, just might, change 50,000 votes the other way? I'm not trying to bring you down. I'm not. It's Friday. Let's be honest about the conditions on the ground here. Donald Trump's approval ratings are starting to tick down. Joe Biden, I realize all the polls were wrong last time, and I believe this are wrong as well, but Joe Biden's up in every single national poll right now, every one of them. And again, this man is Joe Biden. kinds of things that that have to be done um you know there's a uh, during world war ii uh you know where roosevelt came up with a thing uh, that uh you know was totally different than a than the, the it's called he called it the you know the world war ii he had the world the, the war production board um that guy cannot be president of the united states maybe you could make the argument, maybe, that that guy could be president of the United States a year ago when the economy was booming and there weren't any, you know, major international troubles brewing and there wasn't a pandemic. And, and look, he's going to get in there. He's going to have advisors around him. He's going to appoint every leftist idiot he knows from the academia political academia political world. From the media world, he'll have his vice president there, and maybe you can look. That guy could maybe do four years. Let's hope nothing major happens. Give him four years. The economy's churning. Just it's, 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 you just exist there, maybe, and that's a big maybe. Keep in mind, he's running for the most stressful job in the world. Twenty-hour days regularly. Have you ever seen a before and after picture of George Bush before the presidency and George Bush after? Have you seen a before picture of Barack Obama before he was elected and then Barack Obama after? That job sucks the life out of you, the stress and strain. Take somebody like Joe Biden, who should have tender, loving care the rest of his life and put him in the most stressful job on earth. I'm genuinely worried the job itself would kill him let alone kill us. 
That man needs to make national decisions for a $20 trillion economy and 330 million people, and we have a hostile foreign force after us. And, ugh, yeah. Okay, I'm excited about this, Chris. We have a prepper, a doomsday prepper coming up. He's going to tell us how to survive everything. Gosh, I'm so freaking excited. It's going to be sweet. I need to know what's going in my bunker. Hang on. I don't want to waste a second before I bring him in because I have been wanting this for a while. Good job, producer Chris, for getting him on. It's Jim Cobb of DoomsdayPrepConsultants.com. The dude has written about 9,000 books. He's been featured nationally. And, Jim, I need to know where I get my bunker, how I should build my bunker, and what I need in my bunker. (laughs) Well... I'll be honest with you. Uh-huh. Bunkers are kind of, they're far down on the list oh, in terms of priorities when it, it comes to being prepared for emergencies, okay? Okay. Um, reason being, number one, they're expensive. And number two, the odds of a disaster happening to such a degree that you need to be in a bunker is fairly remote compared to the run-of-the-mill types of disasters that happen all the time. Okay. Um, What I like to tell people is to, you know, ramp up, start small and work your way towards the bigger goals. Don't try to, you know, do it all at once. For example, when we talk about emergency food, a lot of people, their instinct is to hop online and try to find a pallet's worth of MREs or freeze-dried food, something like that, that they can just buy in one fell swoop. Well, I know you have experience with MREs. Mm-hmm. Do, do you enjoy living on those for a week at a time? No, I, no, I do not. No, I I'll certainly do what. not. I'm so thrilled to hear that there's a different answer. <laughs> I, I mean, I tell you what, that, that's one way to solve the toilet paper shortage problem. Okay. <laughs> it's so criminally true. I, I told this story on the air the other day, Jim, that uh, that is not, it's no solution for your insides, let me tell you. No. Okay. No. What I tell people is eat what you or store what you eat, eat what you store. Okay. When you go grocery shopping, most people, most families are buying at least some quantity of shelf-stable food on a regular basis. They're buying canned goods. They're buying pasta. They're buying rice because that's what they eat on a regular basis. Just increase the quantity of those things that you buy. You know, for example, if your family particularly likes Chef Boyardee, okay, I, I don't know why, but let's say your family does, and it goes on sale, buy a couple extra cans than you normally would and put them on the shelf. And just increase this over time. That way you don't have a huge impact on your wallet, number one. And number two, the food's not going to go to waste. You're going to eat it eventually because it's things you already eat. On top of all that, you know it's not going to wreak havoc with your digestive system if suddenly that's all you have to eat. 
You know what I mean? Sorry, a really stupid question. I'm sorry to interrupt. Where do you keep it? I'm assuming you have quite a store. Do you have a shed out back? You've already burst my bunker dreams. So where do you keep <laughs> one? Where do you keep your food, and how much of it do you keep per person? What I recommend is I'll answer the second question first. Okay, okay. when it comes to quantity, the first goal you should have. If you're just starting out. Your first goal is two weeks. You want two weeks worth of food, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. After you reach that two weeks, now shoot for a month. After you get that month, go for two months. I like to see people have at least two to three months worth of food. Some people like to go far beyond that. That's fine. What I try to avoid is I don't want people to get freaked out right off the bat and think, oh, my God, I need a year's worth of food and I need it right now. That's just not practical and it's not feasible. When it comes to the storage, just about anything in life that you're ever going to want to store for a long term, whether it's food, water, or anything else, cool, dark, dry, those are the requirements. So if you have a dry basement, you know, a basement you don't have to worry about it flooding or whatever, that's often the perfect place. Set up some shelving down there and you're good to go. I don't like to suggest people store things in an outdoor shed because it's not climate controlled. And in far too many places in the country, you've got humidity, you've got high heat in the summers, you've got the below zero in the winters, and it's just a recipe for failure. Is there Um, anything I can do? Because look, I'm in Houston and I don't have a basement and it's freaking miserable hot here and it is humid here is there anything i can do as far as absorbing some of that humidity any way i can get it out of my house if i don't have a room in my house or is that just not possible honestly it's probably not feasible okay. not without building a special structure to keep it climate controlled okay. what about now that's- what about water ammo and money or gold or whatever it is okay water the the various and sundry experts in the industry will tell you, you need to have one gallon of water per person per day for the length of the emergency. The problem with that is nobody knows how long an emergency is going to go on for. It's hard to know that ahead of time. My crystal ball stopped working a long time ago. What I recommend is a two-pronged approach to water. Number one, you should have some amount of water stored, bottled water, water that you've bottled yourself, you know, refilling two-liter soda bottles, things like that. Have enough to get you through at least a few days to a week, okay? On top of that, you should have the means to take water sourced from outside the home, rainwater, pond, creek, lake, whatever you might have nearby, you want to have the means to take that water and render it clean enough to drink. Do this through, you know, a water filter product, boiling it, uh, water purification tablets. There are a number of different options on the market. I tend to favor the Sawyer brand products myself. I don't get anything for saying that. I just, I'm a satisfied customer. Um, but there are any number of other filtration or disinfection products on the market have at least two different things that you can use. The general rule is two is one, one is none. You want to have at least one backup, okay? Okay. 
when it comes to... What do you have for water filtration? Sorry to nail you down on it, but like, where do I go? Amazon, Cabela's, what do you you use for water filtration? Amazon is where I typically go. Um, Right now, they're shipping a little bit slower than normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any sporting goods store, I mean, Walmart in their sporting goods department, they've got the Sawyer Mini water filter. I'm pretty sure they probably still have life straws, things like that. Um, you, you can find them anywhere. These aren't special secret products by any means. Okay. Ammunition and money. Do you even bother with money? What are we prepping for either? Are we prepping for a tornado, the Chinese invading? What, what are we doing? Well, pretty much any, any of your preps are universal. Okay. And by that, I mean, one of the most common emergencies that the family may face is sudden loss of income. The primary breadwinner gets laid off, gets fired, their company closes up, whatever, and suddenly they're on their own, at least until the unemployment check starts coming in, let alone finding a new job, and it could still be weeks before they see another deposit into their bank account. So, you know, if you're prepping for that, at the same time, you have this pandemic situation hits, and suddenly we've got the loss of income on top of not being able to find things that you want at the store. Um, your movements may be curtailed due to governor's orders, Jim, things like that. I'm sorry to interrupt, and I hate to ask this because I didn't prep you beforehand, but I have other questions. Is there any way I can hold you through this break I'm up against and ask you a couple more things on the back end? Is that okay? Yeah, not a problem. Outstanding. We're talking with Jim Cobb of DoomsdayPrepConsultants.com. I'm going to ask him a couple more things on the other side. Hang on just one second, okay, everybody? And, again, if you have to email me, you can email me, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. That's jesse at jessekellyshow.com. I want to know what he has for ammo, and I know he burst my bunker theory, but what if I want to dig one anyway? Hang on. Feeling a little stocky? Follow, like, and subscribe on social at Jesse Kelly DC. Speaking with Jim's uh, with Jim Cobb at DoomsdayPrepConsultants.com. He's written a bunch of books on it, been published nationally. Jim, money. Uh, I understand that it's doomsday, so you may not need actual dollar bills. Do you keep gold, silver? Do you keep dollar bills? What do you do for money? Well, there's a couple of different approaches to this, but I, I do need to make one really quick correction. Okay. It's disaster prep consultant, oh, I'm not sorry. doomsday. Disasterprepconsultants.com. Okay. Disaster okay. Yep. Now, when it comes to money... Like anything else, you want to diversify, okay? You should have some cash on hand because not every disaster is going to rise to the level of suddenly currency no longer exists. Mm -hmm. Have some cash. How much is some? I like to suggest at least a full month's worth of expenses, if not more. Okay. Okay? Um, When it comes to precious metals... Honestly, I'm kind of conflicted on that because, number one, yes, Precious metals hold their value pretty consistently. But at the same time, you need to find somebody who's willing to take them in place of currency. 
And while some people are really adept and they'll recognize, you know, gold or silver right off, you're going to have people who they don't deal with it on a regular basis, and they're not they're going to be reluctant because they don't know for sure is this genuine, is this real, you know, that kind of a thing. So that's why I say diversify. Have some regular cash. Have a little bit in precious metals, and if you want to go this far, you might think about barter items as well. Um, and this isn't something that I would suggest people invest a whole ton of their resources into, but there are things that are likely to hold higher value after a disaster. It sounds ridiculous, but toilet paper, um, tobacco, alcohol, things like that, things that you're probably going to use anyway, but if you have a little bit extra, that way you can trade it off if you need to, that kind of an approach. What do you do for, and I realize we might be getting a little, you know, too deep in the weeds with some of this stuff, but I'm enjoying it, so I'm not going to stop. What do you do for fuel or or, or power? I mean, are, are we even planning for something like that? There is no more power grid or something. Do you have a generator? Do you have five? Do you have a big fuel tank? Do you have nothing? Well, again, you want to have different options. Um, a generator is great to have, but they're noisy. Okay, so you got to take the good with the bad. You can power a lot of things in your house, but the entire neighborhood's going to know you're doing it. Um, solar panels are a great option. There is, you know, a pretty substantial outlay of cash at the outset, but you're going to earn that back over time later. Um, with fuel, you know, obviously you're going to want to use fuel stabilizers, and even that's not going to last forever. Okay, but the the flip side of this is. The odds of a disaster happening that is so severe that we don't ever recover from it in our lifetimes is almost ridiculously remote. Society has a way of bouncing back, okay? So as long as you're able to, you know, if you want to take the extreme long-term view, as long as you're able to fend for yourself for a year, you're probably going to be just fine. Okay. Speaking of fending for yourself for a year, Ammunition. I know that's a bit of a hardcore question, but I want to know, do you have do you have 10 weapons set aside with 10,000 rounds each? Do you have one? Do you have none? How do you approach something like that? I I tell people if you're if you're going to explore firearms, okay, number 1, you should have at least one rifle and one handgun for each member of your family. Okay? Preferably more than one. Because if, you know, something malfunctions, you want to be able to repair it, things like that. You want to have spare parts, okay? For ammunition, that's really, really a judgment call. Now, if we take a practical approach to this, odds are you're not going to need 10,000 rounds of anything, okay? Even if you're counting in regular range time, okay? But... Ammunition is kind of a security blanket for us. Is there ever really truly enough? Probably not. Okay, for some people, they're they're constantly acquiring it and they're using it because they're going to the range, they're practicing, which is obviously something that has to happen on a regular basis. Marksmanship and accuracy and just overall firearms use, it's a very perishable skill. Okay, yeah, it's not something that you can just, you know, once a year spend an hour plinking at 
tin cans and call it good. Jim Cobb, go read his stuff. Completely fascinating. Thank you for giving us so much time today. Again, it's disasterprepconsultants.com. Jim, anything you want people to do before I send you off? Get better prepared. Okay. <laughs> I know it sounds cliche, but take the time to do it. You'll thank me later. Jim, thank you so much. That was fascinating. We're having you back on. Jim Cobb, disasterprepconsultants.com. That was fascinating, Chris. And I'll tell you, I have the ammunition, but I don't have any of the rest of that stuff. And look, on some of that stuff, like I mean, like he talked about MREs in the beginning. I mean, I've got, that's what I've got. I didn't know. The, the daggone things keep forever. I didn't know, but that was pretty fascinating. No, buy a couple extra cans. You're fine. All right. Now, I have a couple more things. One, you can email me, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. No, I cannot possibly respond to all of them. Yes, you send it. I will read it. I read every single one of them. jesse at jessekellyshow.com. Just fire away. I should clarify something. If you send me a college thesis that is multiple pages long, I will read it in more of a browsing way. Brevity, people. Brevity. Hang on one second. Remember, we're having the kids serve us dinner tonight, and they're giving us the whole wait staff waiting tables experience. And we're going to order the food in because I'm not eating anything those little jerks are cooking. What do we order? Oh, we're going to DoorDash anything, but most food. I, I, I want. Here's what I. Here's why I ask, Chris. They have to get the food in the house. They have to arrange the food on some sort of a plate for me, and deliver it to me. What I'm saying is that food is not going to be piping hot, so I need food that does not have to be piping hot. Of course I would love Red Lobster, Chris. I'm never getting the wife to agree to Red Lobster. That's more of my white trashy thing. Look, you don't have to talk me into Red Lobster. All right, if you missed any part of the show, highly recommend you catch at least the opening today. It's all available, podcasted on iHeart. Google, Spotify, Apple. If you're an iTunes guy, right there at the touch of your finger. Jesse at jessekellyshow.com. If you want to email me, you all be extra safe this weekend. Take care and remember, let's all die with some stories. That's all. Jesse Kelly Show. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, you'll hear amazing stories from people that have lived them, from spies to CEOs, even an undercover agent who infiltrated the Gambino crime family. You're about to hear a preview of the Jordan Harbinger Show with Jack Garcia, who did just that. 
my career was 24 out of 26 years was solely dedicated working on the cover. Now I walk in, I'm in the bar. Now there's a barmaid there, good looking young lady. She's serving me drink. Hey, what would you like? I usually, my drink was, give me a kettle, one martini, three olives, glass of water on the side. I finish the drink. The guys come in. I'm going to go, go in my pocket, take out the big wad of money. Bam, I give her $100. If you're with the mob, I say, hey, Jordan, you're on record with us. That means we protect you. Nobody could shake you down. We could shake you down, but you're on record with us. For more on how Jack became so trusted in the highest levels of the Gambino organization, check out episode 392 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals, each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.